0: everyone to the 2015 discovery show on the George Sanders show. Uh, Every December we dedicate an episode to films that we saw for the first time this year that uh, really wowed us. And what happens is uh, we kind of go through each other's uh, letterbox lists of uh, films we saw in the year. And I pick a film from Sean's that I haven't seen that he saw and really liked this year. And Sean does the same for me. So I picked off of Sean's list, Oliver Stone's 2004 epic Alexander. Um, we were talking about the ultimate cut today, uh, which is the most recent cut out of like five cuts of that thing. Uh, and Sean picked off of my list, Nightmare Alley, a film that we've mentioned in passing a couple times on the show, uh, a noir from 1947 directed by Edmund Golding. Um, how do you feel about that, Sean? you feel good about this discovery show? you like this discovery show? It's kind of fun to change things up a little bit.
1: Yeah, I, it's, uh, you know, at this time of year, it's always nice to, to take a look back and see what we've accomplished
0: <laughs> accomplished yeah i i was you know, thinking in, in, squandered in,
1: in in the watching of movies
0: sure yeah. the, the 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 life that was squandered but the movies that were accomplished uh in 2015 for us yeah
1: well and this this you know as as you know this is uh end of the year list time for, for film critics around the country and, and around the world, everyone's making their best of 2015 list. I think it's, it's, I think these lists are a lot more interesting. These, uh, these movies that are older that people have watched for the first time. Like I, I wish that they were as, as common as, uh, as, you know, top 10 films of the year lists.
0: Were. Right. Which your eyes just kind of glaze over. Cause it's the same movies, uh, over and over and over
1: again. Yeah, and yeah. that's you know you know part of the the whole point of the George Sanders show is to is to look back at films of the past as well as you know keeping an eye on films of the present. So I'm I'm glad we do something like this, and yeah, also and... the 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 episode we're doing next time as well is part right. of that.
0: Right. Our two December episodes definitely uh, run with that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition to these two films, we're going to uh, dedicate the middle part of the show to um, kind of a longer discussion about movies or genres or actors or directors or, or people that we, you know, things that we did a deeper dive into this year um, and kind of highlight
1: those. Yeah. Not like a, not strictly like a, a top five list of the new movies we saw or the movies we saw for the first time this year, but just a, uh, like a year in review.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, and in addition to that, we'll also be listening to, uh, music that is themed around that, where it's music that uh, we discovered for the first time this year, um, you know, older music. And uh, my selection, one of my selections, was the song that you heard at the beginning of the show. Uh, that's Part-Time Punks uh, from Television Personalities, um, which is just one of, that's just a great song, uh, you know, uh, making fun of Susie and the Banshees and The Clash and stuff like that. So, uh Speaks to me on so many levels. So anyway, um, instead of hearing clips from the movies, um, we're also going to just keep rolling with the music this week. So um, since it's your film, Sean, Alexander was a a film you really enjoyed earlier this year. uh, What music are we going to lead into for our discussion of Oliver Stone's film?
1: Uh, Hang on, let me look up the title. (laughs) (laughs) You spent all day...
2: And yeah. you don't remember the title? Well, I
1: didn't... I, I Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, my first pick is uh, is from Joanna Newsom, who will also be making an appearance on our Best Music of 2015 show, which we're going to do what, in a couple of months on our Oscar show. Uh, but this is uh, an older song from her. I'd never actually listened to any of her music before, other than like the soundtrack for Inherent Vice, which I also saw this year. So I guess it's all new in 2015. Anyway, this is uh, 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 a little bit of uh, Cosmia from her album Ease. Why
3: have you gone away? Gone away again. I'll sleep through the rest of my day. If you're gone away again, I'll sleep through the rest of my day. my days and I'll sleep tried so hard. My little darling, I couldn't keep the night from coming in. In all those lonely nights down by the river brought me bread and water in a kiss can. Now in the quiet hour when I am sleeping, I cannot keep the night from coming
0: So when, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back uh, further than we did in the intro, but uh, one of the great things about this episode in particular is I also really like the fact that it forces me to watch, um, it doesn't force me, but, it, you know, it, it it forces me to watch a movie that I would not necessarily seek out. And Alexander is pretty much the definition of one of those things. Um, I... I mean, I'm not totally against it, but obviously this movie has a, a reputation um, uh, for, you know, being a, a flop and being heavy handed. It was uh, nominated for, you know, a half dozen Razzies when it came out. And, um, it, you know, it it didn't it didn't do so well um, in the critical sphere. I think, it, you know, it was like 13 percent on Rotten Tomatoes or something like that. Um it's not well loved. So anyway, uh, so to see it on your list and see you gave it such a great review um, back in January or whenever you saw it um, really intrigued me. And uh, and it was definitely, you know, we had three or four movies that we were kind of bouncing back and forth about talking about on the show. But this is the one that definitely intrigued me the most. Um, and so if you're not familiar with Alexander, uh, back in 2004, Oliver Stone uh, came out with this Life of Alexander the Great, um, starring Colin Farrell and uh, a rogues gallery, a ton, ton of, of actors. Um, Val Kilmer's in it, Angelina Jolie, Anthony Hopkins, uh, all on down the line. Uh, Rosario right. Dawson's in it. It's it's kind of insane how many people are in this movie. But um, we're talking about the ultimate cut. Like we said, um, the movie's been chopped up a number of times how do you know how many times it's been Sean is it uh, five I believe the four?
1: ultimate cut is the fourth cut fourth cut the fourth, fourth cut, cut of the cut. film
0: yeah and uh it's the one that's kind of the most well-regarded right you'd say is that uh, in, in circles
1: yeah in, I guess I mean I I don't know that it's well-regarded at all I I heard about it on uh the uh the year in review episode of the cinephiliacs podcast last year where uh, uh uh Keith Ulick put it on his uh top 10 films of 2014 and i had never heard anybody say anything good about it before but he uh the way he described it i was i was interested and so i watched it and I agree with him. It's I think it's really great, (laughs) but I don't know that anyone else, I don't know that there's like a big, uh, like groundswell movement in favor of any version of Alexander. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, Which is a shame because, uh, you know, and I haven't seen the, the, you know, uh, neither of us have seen any of the other cuts. Um, So, you know, who knows they could be travesties, um, but this is a really solid movie. Um, And, and, you know, I can see. You know, Oliver Stone is a is a director of uh, singular personality, and he's known to do things in you know excess at times. And I can see how, uh, some of those tendencies could be uh, problematic uh, for viewers of of the film. And and I actually think that there are moments in this movie where. Um, he you know those tendencies get the best of him and stuff but we can dig into that a little bit later but basically the story is um basically given the whole life of alexander the great uh played by as uh, a man by colin farrell and we see flashbacks to when he was a kid it bounces all over in time i mean it, it it starts with him dying then goes back to no then cuts 40 years in the future when, uh, Anthony Hopkins is like dictating the story, then goes back to him as a kid and, and all, all over the place, left and right. Um, and you know, we said it's three hours and 20 minutes or so. Um, but I feel like the thing moves at a clip. I mean, I, I was never really bored and it never felt like it was, uh, I was hitting any dead spots, dead weight in it. Um, I don't know anything about history, mm. <laughs> so I I have a feeling that this is not, uh, you know, to, to the history, to the, to the facts that we know, I'm sure this probably is a little fast and loose, but you are more of a history buff, Sean. So, and I know that you watched a lot of, uh, historical epics this year, um, in the last, last year too, I, I believe. Um, and you hated pretty much every single one of them, but is one of the reasons you like this one because it's more historically accurate. I know that that's been a sticking point with the other ones.
1: uh, it's it's not you know what you would call historically accurate but it's it's still for the most part it's it's kind of true to history
0: except they, for the irish accents
1: yeah well i mean there are <laughs> obvious concessions to limitations of of certain actors but uh no i think i think uh one of the one of the things i like about it is the relation it has to history and it's not so much in its in its facts, but, in the, the way it, uh, it depicts Alexander as a person, as a psychology. Like I, I, I feel like it's, it's kind of attempting to imagine how Alexander would have thought and felt about things, uh, you know, 2,500 years ago, as opposed to, uh, projecting a modern sensibility onto a historical figure. hmm like he it it's does that does that make sense like very few yeah, movies yeah. I think do that like a lot of the historic historical epics we see are revisionist and and what that usually means is making modern characters and people out of historical figures and it's very rare that you get a film that tries to uh, project a kind of alien consciousness onto a screen and I think that that is one of the many things that that this movie tries to do it it tries to do a lot of things it's an oliver stone film which means it's it's grasping in like dozens of different directions at the same time which is one of the things that makes him really fun as a filmmaker and uh yeah i i like i like that like as as for like the factual you know this happened then i i don't know that the film is all that accurate although one thing that is accurate as far as i know is that initial battle sequence which takes up like the majority of the first uh half hour of the film like after after kind of the prologue stuff that you talked about we uh we jump right into the the battle of guagamela which is where Alexander defeated the the Persians. It's this, it's this like really famous battle. and And Stone does like a really terrific job, I think, of laying out the geography of this battle and showing this kind of insane uh, maneuver that Alexander did, and which was how he was able to defeat this much larger Persian army and And Stone shows you how he did it without kind of explaining it in exposition but you just see it visually which i think is really neat and it it plays out pretty much how it did historically
0: yeah i really i really dug that uh you know he 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 shows you you know there's a little uh title cards that come up that say you know which which uh section of the army we're looking at right now and he does, does some really great one of the the first striking things about it was the um the really expert use of uh kind of an overhead shot like of of getting of getting the vastness of this uh terrain and these two armies of thousands of people deep um and really showing you know where the action is taking place and and how how the formations are spreading out and all of those kinds of things i thought that was very very uh impressive And and it comes back later on in the film uh for another battle,
1: uh, yeah. There's there's another extended battle sequence at the end, which is which is like less historically accurate, but is still. But that's also that's also where like Oliver Stone is at his Oliver Stoniest and uh, and
0: is awesomeness.
1: Yeah, it's like it's like three hours into the movie, and then finally, it's like he you know, he lets loose and does all of like the crazy shit you expect Oliver Stone to do. And it's, it's so good. It's really good. <laughs>
0: it's so good. <laughs> like, yeah. That oh man. We can come back to that part. But oh man, it's when it when it kicks into overdrive. Yeah. Oh I loved it. Loved it to death.
1: Yeah. So like 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 you said, it, it does uh it it does jump around in time, but it it uh it stays in chronological order just kind of on two separate tracks like there's the the alexander uh, and his relationship with his parents uh track and then there's the alexander uh moving further and further east after he defeats the persians and then moves on into into afghanistan and then and then down into india uh but, you know, so I don't I don't think it's really like disorienting as if it was like jumping all over the place in time. It's just it just is going back and forth between these two main narratives.
0: Right. And yeah, I mean, even though it'll do a flashback to childhood for 20 minutes or whatever, and then jump to, um, you know, 20 years later and, and all those things. Yeah. I mean, the story is fairly linear, uh, um it's just the the timeline is a little uh chopped up but it, it like yeah. I said it doesn't get um confusing at all.
1: No and and often the uh the two the storylines will be like thematically linked. Like there will be something going on in in like uh when Alexander's in in uh in Afghanistan and that will remind him of something that Aristotle told him when he was a kid. So you can cut back and see Aristotle talking. Uh Christopher Plummer. Right. It's not, it's not like, uh, it's not like strictly obvious that that is what's happening, but it, it, some of the time there are kind of thematic connections between, between the cuts. Yeah. Yes. But it's not really as like schematic as that sounds. Right.
0: Was
1: um, uh, there one of the, uh, which of the timelines did you prefer? Do you like the, the young Alexander or the old Alexander? Not that he ever got old because he died like just before he turned 33 um spoiler uh, <laughs> for, for, for 2300, 2300 years of history that's right that's right
0: um did did i have a clear preference i mean um i really liked the kid that played the young alexander um and i thought it was a good bit of casting because you could see uh um, he
1: really looks like colin farrell yeah he it's really freaky. looks like
0: colin. it's 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 pretty impressive um and i and while I won't say that I pref- necessarily preferred that section, um, I do have a problem. One of my problems with the film, um, and I hate to say this because I've, I've always been a Colin Farrell kind of, uh, I don't know. I don't want to say apologist, but a lot of people have, have, uh, had problems with Colin Farrell and I've always defended him because I think he's great. Um, and I think he's great here at certain things. And, um, for example, he's really good at shouting. Um, he's not good at all at weeping. <laughs> he he has a couple of moments where he has to cry out in anguish, and uh, I, I, it's really it's hard to watch, um, which is hard for me to say because I really like myself some Colin Farrell. But um, how do you feel? Is he? How do you feel as him as Alexander?
1: He's okay. Uh, it's, it's, it's probably my least favorite Colin Farrell performance. Like it feels like he is just really uncomfortable in the role. Like he doesn't really have a handle on, on the character in, in the way that that stone does. Like, I don't know. He's. And he's
0: tasked with a lot of stuff. Like, like he has to do a lot.
1: Yeah. And it's 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 so difficult because you know, one of the part of the you know, one of the main ideas in the film is is how impossible it is to really kind of understand Alexander, how in, in a lot of ways he just doesn't make sense. And that's it's really hard to play a character that doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I I I feel like like uh, like Farrell is trying to make a coherent character out of him. Uh, And that is like counter to what Stone is working at and what the plot is is working at. So it's, it's tough. It's a, it's a really tough role. I think he does. Okay.
0: I think, yeah. I mean, I don't think it, I mean, if, if, if he was a failure, the movie, I think would also be a failure. Like if, if he was no good all the way through, but I think, no, I think he's got some really strong moments too. Some of the quieter moments, um, you know, where he, he's not tasked with uh, talking too much. (laughs)
2: Um,
0: I think he sells it. He's got those, you can pull out those sad eyes every once in a while and stuff. Um,
1: Yeah. My, my, my favorite parts are when he's, when he's like obsessed with, with, with moving on and and moving and discovering more territory and conquering more territory. when he's giving these, these speeches, like explaining why he just won't go home and be rich why he wants to, to you know keep going to these ridiculous places. Uh I think he really kinda kinda captures that that kind of yearning that must have driven Alexander.
0: Yeah. There's the scene of him at the top of the mountain looking out at uh
1: Yeah it's the, uh, the Hindu Kush. The Hindu Kush. Range. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um yeah that's really good. Um and <laughs> he's also unfortunately hindered by his hair um yeah. which it, in, in in spots it's fine like you know near the end of the movie he looks kind of like uh you know Thor and that's kind of cool but right before that he kind of looks like Ozzy Osbourne in like the 80s um <laughs> uh,
1: but which, blonde
0: no Ozzy was blonde in the 80s that's really? the thing oh, yeah okay. it was it was no it was no good like blizzard of Oz era, okay. it it wasn't pretty okay uh, so that was distracting but um but what's great about this movie is he's surrounded by so many great performances. Um, and yeah, I want think... to I, I, I want to see if we think. The, can we say it at the same time? Can we count down and say who the best performance
1: is? I maybe. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Three, two, one.
1: Val Kilmer. The Kilmer.
0: <laughs> yeah he's so good
1: He's is. is so good in this movie also a Razzie nominated performance he's
0: so freaking good in this movie yeah he's, like, he's really terrific it's like astounding I mean it he kills it like the, there's a scene where he takes the young Alexander into these mm-hmm. like catacombs and he's like showing him you know the stories of you know Prometheus on the wall and um, all of these <coughs> excuse me these myths and stuff and man he knocks it out of the freaking park
1: yeah, I mean that that's like an example of a performance that uh that really understands the character that he's playing and it is as as far as I know it is fairly accurate to to uh historical accounts of what of what Philip is like. Uh Valcomer plays uh Alexander Great's Alexander the Great's uh father, uh, Philip of Macedonia who conquered Greece and then died and left Alexander his empire in which he went off to expand and whatever. Uh and he's great. He's uh, he's he's monstrous. <laughs> he's he, he's monstrous. He's crude. He's got one eye, but he's also like the smartest person in every room that he's in. And, it's a
0: very nuanced performance because yeah, yeah he it could easily be, be played to the hilt of just like I'm a tyrant and I you know um, you know abuse my wife and you know hate my son and all those things. But then he has those moments where. Uh, this this kind of compassion shows through, um, and his final scene when he's, you know, he, he has a brief moment with uh, Alexander before he gets uh, stabbed. Yeah, that is just fantastic in its understatement. Mm-hmm. You know, where he's like, just give me this. You know, give me the glory right here. Really great stuff.
1: Uh, I I really like Angelina Jolie as well. Me too.
0: She's really good. I, and she, I she's
1: she's watched... she's playing like a a campy a much campier character than. Well, I guess I guess you know Philip is is really outsized, but but Jolie's really kind of playing up. The the you know the accent and the snakes and the kind of slithery you know. Oh, she's chewing the scenery. Yeah, and it's it's a lot of fun. It's a really fun performance.
0: Oh, it's great, and it's mostly her performing to herself, like. Mm-hmm. Most of the film, she's she's you know she's away from all of the action. She's locked uh, locked away with these just these snakes, and she's but yeah, she she just goes for it, and it's it it's wonderful.
1: Yeah, um, she's uh, she's a lot of fun. Uh, Jared Leto, I think, doesn't doesn't bring a whole lot to uh, to his
0: but, character. Uh, but Oliver Stone really loves cutting to those Jared Leto uh, you know reaction shots. Yeah, there are a lot of Jared Leto. He's shots.
1: he's he's much better in the reaction shots than in when he's talking.
0: <laughs> well, like, luckily he doesn't actually talk that much.
1: I think I think mostly it's like a chemistry problem. Like I think Leto and and Farrell just don't have good chemistry. Like you can't really see them as you know lifelong best friends slash lovers. Right.
0: Yeah, he. You know, but but I will say. I don't really care for him as an actor. And uh, I thought he was totally serviceable in this. I didn't actively hate him in this. Like I have in other things.
1: Right. But he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't steal things like, like and and Jolie does. No, no, no. uh, I like Anthony Hopkins too. He's, he's doing, uh, you know, he's doing his Anthony Hopkins thing, just kind of narrating the story. But he, his, uh, the kind of epilogue with him talking to the guy, he's like, he's dictating his like history of Alexander to this writer. And uh, he has this, this monologue at the end where he's trying to to figure out what Alexander means. And he goes off on a tangent and then he's like, no, forget that. Yeah. (laughs) Let me try that again.
2: Right, right, right.
1: And has a completely different take on it. And I love I love how uh, Hopkins delivers that, and I love that that Stone would write something like that because because you know the whole point is like even even for for Ptolemy this guy who grew up with Alexander and who went with him on all of his travels and has had forty years to reflect on it even still he doesn't have any idea what it meant right and you know this I mean that that kind of uh of openness and expansive view of history and what history can be is is what I want in a history film.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. I um I yeah, I I I really like how it's 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 willing to to be messy about it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so many so many so many historical movies are not that. They have they have like a point that they want to prove about you know, either about the present or about the past, and it's it, it's also so boring and often like really dumb. And uh, I watched I watched a lot of historical movies this year. It was kind of like a a little kind of side project, especially like uh, historical epics from the two thousands. And so that's like movies like Gladiator and Troy and and uh, King Arthur and. Those are all terrible.
4: <laughs> but
1: this... and see,
0: and and that's and that's what I go. You know what I was saying at the beginning is like I have no interest in seeing movies like that because they look absolutely atrocious.
1: Yeah, and 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 they kind of are. But I, I, you know, it's just it's one of the things that has really kind of intrigued me. Uh, over the last couple of years and I tried and decided to to kind of like put some work into watching these movies that I hadn't seen either. I mean I saw Gladiator and, and hated it. But but these other movies I hadn't seen. And it's just the idea of of how we represent history. Like the the stories that we tell about history in in our movies I think are are really fascinating because I, I think history is fascinating and and the the kind of you know lack of respect for you know good and and ill that that histor- historical films give us mm-hmm. i don't know there there are a handful i think of really really great historical films uh but that's all and considering how popular a genre it is it's, it's kind of sad and it's frustrating yeah. But uh, but this one and and John Woo's uh Redcliffe I think are are the best of the decade history films. And they're another both, another long one. Yeah, and they're both like really super long and did not do all that well critically. Like Redcliffe was better received, uh than uh than Alexander, obviously like everything was better received than Alexander. But <laughs> I mean even even Redcliffe didn't get a full release in the US. You can only see the full version on on video. So, right. Right. Yeah.
0: Well what do you think of Oliver Stone as a director? I mean I'm not I'm not I've seen his big eighties stuff like Platoon, um, but I'm not that familiar with like I haven't seen JFK, um <laughs> Yeah, I've seen natural born killers and stuff. And, and I know, I know the, uh, the pitfalls of Oliver Stone's work, but uh, how do you, how do you, how do you see him as a director? And how do you see this film in his filmography?
1: How have you not seen JFK? I, I,
0: you know, it was 1991. I was uh, listening to Nirvana.
1: <laughs> I was listening to Nirvana too. And JFK was like my favorite movie. I love that movie. Uh, I I like Oliver Stone a lot. I, I I really like Platoon. I really like JFK. I think uh, I think his Nixon is really interesting. Um, uh, Wall Street I am less of a fan of. U uh, Turn is just kind of crazy. Um,
0: I you know I need to see U Turn again because I did see that on video back when it came out or whatever.
2: Yeah
0: and. I, I remember being like this movie's really weird. I don't even think I knew it was Oliver Stone or whatever at the time. Yeah. But uh, uh but yeah, that's a weird ass movie.
1: Yeah, and Natural Born Killers was a movie that I really liked in the summer of 1994 and right. uh I'm nev- terrified of going back. Yeah, to I that never movie. really want to <laughs> to watch that again. Uh I think uh I think this is one of his better films. Like I really like I think he's a really smart filmmaker who at times gets, uh, goes a little overboard. And I like that. And I, this is more restrained than I've seen him in, since like Wall Street. The, he,
0: yeah, he reminds me, um, a lot of someone like Spike Lee, who, um, you know, the, Their talent is, you know, you you can't argue that they're talented and but and they're so um, idiosyncratic and they and they and they try and stuff so many ideas into their movies and stuff. And and sometimes it swallows them whole. But who would ever want to, you know, neuter that? Like, it's so fun to to have someone that's bold enough to do crazy things like have uh, a three and a half hour long Alexander the Great movie that, uh, you know, has spends about five minutes with like a pink sheen over the screen and like uh, just gets kind of nutty,
2: you know.
1: Yeah, I think I think uh, I think Spike Lee is really good comparison because like uh, there are there are Spike Lee films that I don't really like, but even even a bad Spike Lee film like a like a bad Oliver Stone film is always interesting. Like he's always got something going on in his movies. He right. never will never make anything as boring as like a Ron Howard film
0: right it'll never be faceless and yeah exactly yeah so well yeah good pick there sean Mm um i'm
1: i am i'm i am surprised and and glad that you like this i i was uh i was thinking that you would you would not
0: well hey you know you you buried the lead here by saying by not telling me that there was a scene of a naked colin farrell and a naked rosario dawson like wrestling so uh um, yeah. how could I not like it? <laughs>
1: that that is that is quite the scene.
0: It is quite a scene, right? <laughs> I mean it starts with them um, she sees him macking on a dude and she gets upset. And so Well it's starts... their wedding night. I know, I know, I know. And he's and,
1: making and out he's, with she... multiple dudes.
0: <laughs> and so she starts slapping him real hard and he gets into it, and then she takes a knife and she's gonna cut his throat and he's like, do it, and she's like I'm not gonna do it, cause now we're gonna do it, and then they're all naked, and it's crazy.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a, I, you that's know a that fun that scene. is
0: one thing. I, I really like Rosario Dawson. I wish there was more of her in this, um, cause I I always like seeing her. I think she's really underrated as a as a performer, um, and she's always. Always a welcome presence in my mind
1: um, yeah she's she's really overqualified for the part like I, th- exactly. I think the, the character yeah. doesn't really have a whole lot to do with Alexander's story so there's right. not really much for her to do in the film right but uh, yeah well except for you know the theory that she killed him Well, there's that yeah everybody, everybody gets
0: uh, you know all the major characters in this get a, get a scene of them screaming in agony. Yeah. towards the camera whose whose scream and agony is the best i've got to go to angelina jolie yeah because she, she she really gets that guttural kind of wail going on
1: yeah Jolie's uh, Jolie's pretty great <laughs> i like the uh i like the you know like the hangers on around alexander all of like the the His soldiers buddies? yeah yeah like yeah. just it's it's like this this like can you imagine like your your friends from elementary school going out to like conquer half of the known world.
0: <laughs> well, we did, but it was called Foster City and it was the suburbs. But yeah, right. I know I know it's Yeah,
1: it's just kind of crazy.
0: <laughs> right. So uh so what's our next tune that's segueing us out of here, Sean? A, a discovery uh, from
1: 2015. Uh hmm
0: How could you not have this planned out?
1: Um, well you <laughs> you sprung the uh the order on me, and I'm trying to figure out what what would go best here. And right now I can't think of the third song. Oh. Uh around the the same time I was watching uh watching Alexander, uh I came across like a complete discography from uh uh Chinese pop singer Fei Wang. And uh so I spent maybe the first like four months of this year listening to Cantonese and Mandarin pop music that I didn't understand at all, but I absolutely loved. And so now I am going to pick uh, one of the songs. And this is I spent all afternoon today listening to various Fei Wong songs, trying to decide on which to pick. And finally, I just gave up. And uh, I went with uh, Restless, which is off the album Restless. All
2: right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: forgot to to share my uh my interesting fact that uh that i discovered on on the wikipedia while i was waiting for you to update skype before we started the show and uh this this is it uh it's uh in one of the changes for the first director's cut of alexander uh he uh uh, uh, it, it quotes the, the commentary and saying why the dates and the flashbacks and the flash forwards use normal historical figures such as 323 BC and 356 BC as opposed to referring to time lapses like 30 years earlier. In his commentary, Stone explains that for the theatrical release in the United States, he had to refrain from using regular BC dates since, according to data collected from test screenings, there was a significant number of viewers who did not know that 356 BC represented an earlier historical period than 323 BC. <laughs> so,
0: and you wonder yeah. why the movie was a flop?
1: Yeah. So <laughs> this yay. is why he was
0: working with people. Yay, America! That's right. That's hilarious.
1: All right, so moving on uh we're talking about the the things that we discovered in 2015 so so what is the uh what is the first thing that you want to talk about
0: yeah so this is yeah this is kind of like the year a year long version of what's mike watching i guess
1: in
2: mm-hmm. a way
0: um so uh the first thing i want to talk about we're going to do a five right is that the plan yeah okay good cuz i only got five <laughs> that you know the um the year as it were um a lot of it is dedicated to things that have come up on the show previously um like vancouver international film festivals seattle international film festival um and then things that will be coming up shortly on the show like uh 1965 and then obviously um films of 2015 so um so yeah my top five or my five picks here um are really um the few spots that I, I dove a little deeper into uh, things outside of those areas. Uh, and the first area I'd like to talk about is lesbians. Hmm. Uh, because
1: you took a deep I, dive into
0: lesbians. <laughs> I, you know, I walked into that one, didn't I? Um, <laughs> no, but I was looking back through, you know, it wasn't a conscious decision on my part, uh, to watch a lot of lesbian movies, uh, this year, but, um, but, when I look back on the, on the films that I really responded to um, the best love stories I saw um, this year uh, were films that happened to be between two women and, and the movies themselves are, are vastly different. Um, we talked about one on the show, uh, Chantal Ackerman's J'ai tout il elle, uh on the show, which I really liked. Um, but, the, and then there's one I'm sure will come up later um, in the year um, when we talk about Carol,
4: but oh, yeah,
0: uh, well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, in February, uh, Seattle finally got a release of The Duke of Burgundy, which I thought was a really, um, really well done film that, you know, really, despite all of the surface trappings of of, of it that are kind of shocking or risque or whatever, I, you know, I thought that the movie really got to some fundamental things about uh, love and relationships and, um power structures and all that kind of stuff that goes on and those kinds of things um and i think it's a really beautiful movie uh and also uh another film that i'd like to highlight that doesn't get talked about a lot i think because it's pretty hard to find is times square um which is a movie from the early 80s um, about two homeless kind of punk rocker um gals who you know live out on a wharf and uh they kind of form a band, and Tim Curry is this record you know this d j who kind of highlights their stuff and they kind of have this manifestos about you know teenage punk rock rebellion stuff and uh it's it's a movie that was kind of chopped to hell um upon release, but you cannot deny the kind of magnetism that goes into the the two um lead roles and the and uh the relationships they're in and and yeah, you know the best. Love stories of uh, that I saw this year didn't involve men at all, and I think that's totally cool. So, right on. Yeah,
2: yeah. i
1: I'm, I have uh, like a rough kind of top forty list of the older movies I've seen this year, and uh, there there are no lesbians on it. Oh. Uh, although I, you know, I also I really like The Duke of Burgundy and 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 Carol as well, but but those aren't uh, aren't eligible for this list. Uh, the closest I have is. Uh, from a, a movie called The East is Red, which is uh, Swordsman 3, which mm-hmm. stars uh, Bridget Lin as a kung fu master who uh, attains so much power, he turns from a man into a woman. And the third one is when he kind of comes back. He She comes back from, from the dead to, like, terrorize people, and she's all insane. And, yeah, that's a very good movie.
0: Yeah, I need to rewatch that one. It's been 20 years since I saw it. Yeah. But, yeah.
1: But uh, the, uh, the kind of love stories I watched the most this year were this, uh, this series my wife and I did over the summer. We watched a bunch of uh, BBC literary adaptations. Uh, we watched uh, uh, Middlemarch, which was okay. We watched a 2009 version of Emma, which was not quite as okay. Uh the one that was really great that we watched is the nineteen ninety-five adaptation of uh of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice with uh Jennifer Eel and, and Colin Firth. Uh yeah, it's uh it's generally considered like the best Jane Austen adaptation and uh it it is.
0: Well it's the birth of Colin
1: Firth too, right? Uh no no, he he was around before them. but yeah, it's the kind of thing but, that made him I, that uh kind of it entrenched him. It made him a star, him. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah. entrenched him in the, the female consciousness. Uh, have you ever seen uh, the Milos Forman version of Dangerous Liaisons that actually came out the same year as the uh, the Stephen Frears one called, called Valmont? It's got uh, Colin Firth plays the John Malkovich part and uh, he's pretty good in that. And that's like 1988,
0: I think, so. Colin Firth, much more attractive than John Malkovich.
1: Yes, <laughs> but not nearly as uh kind of menacing a figure. Well, yeah, yeah, uh, be. anyway, uh, uh, Pride and Prejudice, it's it's terrific, it's it's not all that long. It's like I think it's basically like four hours long, as opposed to some of these, like Middle March seemed to like go on forever and ever and ever, and and still feel like a ton was cut out from the novel, whereas Pride and Prejudice. Kind of, it it captures a lot of the the Jane Austen experience, and it does it in a, an interesting way. Like it's it's very obviously filmed for television. Like the sets are cheap, the costumes are cheap, and I I like that. It's it's less kind of ornate and expansive than than something like Angley's *Sense and Sensibility*, which even though the the characters are supposed to be poor, they live in like these big houses and they have like these nice clothes and and everything is all carefully composed and manicured whereas the the house in pride and prejudice is is messy there's like girls everywhere and they're always talking and yelling and and giggling and there's mud and rain and it it feels lived in in a way that that other jane austen adaptations don't
2: Mm.
1: and i really like that about it i really love jennifer eel's performance and and Colin Firth, I think, is is justly praised for his performance. Like he gets, he gets everything about that that character right. But but Jennifer Ely is eel, Ely, is uh, is every bit as good as he is. Cool. So yeah, I should,
0: I should get around to that.
1: Yeah, I tried to talk you into to watching one of these things for the show, and you're like, I'm not going to watch that, and I'm not going to spend that much time doing that. No.
0: Yeah, but Alexander, I was down.
1: But Alexander, you're down. <laughs>
0: um, well, you know, I talked about this on the show. You know, you and and the misses did did your deep dive into the BBC. And every March, uh, my girlfriend and I do uh, you know uh, 31 days of uh, something. You know, last year we did westerns, and I've talked about this before on the show, so I'm not going to spend too much time. But this year it was film noir, um, which is a genre that I you know I have a passing familiarity with, but I um had there were a lot of you know gaps in my knowledge of, of film noir um and i'll bring up some of those uh, later on this list but um it was a really fun time i, I saw some really great stuff uh, including nightmare alley which we'll be talking about uh, in just a little bit um the the best movie that i saw in that whole span that i hadn't seen before uh was in a lonely place the nicholas ray film which uh, i mentioned before on the show um which just blew my mind and um, it blows everybody's mind and it's nothing new, but um, just a fantastic film. But I saw a number of really, really fantastic noir films um, this year, including Thieves Highway, which um, you and I talked about earlier this week because I accidentally checked that out of the library instead of Nightmare Alley <laughs> and was ready to ready to get ready to prepare for the show and popped it in and realized, oh, wait, I put the wrong movie on. Hold request there. Um, but yeah i saw I saw a whole bunch of really great stuff um and while while last year's western series spoke more to me uh and my personal uh predilections uh, there are some great, really interesting, weird wonderful noirs out there um and it's and it's such a vast you know for for a for a genre that you know kind of has bookend dates for at least the it's you know.
1: Classical period.
0: Classical period. There are so many movies. It's insane. Yeah. It, it's absolutely bananas. And I, and that goes to show because, you know, Seattle Art Museum here um, has been doing a film noir festival, which is they usually do seven or eight films, uh, and they've been doing it for 38 years now. So uh, there's yeah. there's plenty to pick from uh, when it comes to film noir.
1: Yeah, that, that series just, just ended yesterday.
0: Yeah, where I, I made it just in time to catch David Fincher's Zodiac on 35mm. Yeah. Uh,
1: so. Of, of the, the top 40 lists that I have here, there is only one film that could be considered a film noir, and that is uh, uh, The Story of a Discharged Prisoner, which is the Patrick Lung Kong film from 1967 that uh, kind of was the inspiration for A Better Tomorrow, which we talked about on the show. Right. And it's uh, it's uh, it's much more like a kind of social problem film noir film than it is like a, Jean Woo, a John Woo John film. Mm. So yeah, that that is a really good uh, interesting movie. I didn't really have like a, a genre that I spent a lot of time watching movies from this year, uh, unlike the last couple of years where I spent a lot of time watching. Kung Fu films or, or other kinds of Hong Kong films. I didn't, I, I was much more kind of all over the place this year, but, but one thing, uh, looking at, at some of like the, my favorite films from the air is, uh, I saw a lot of really, really great, uh, documentaries and nonfiction films. Um, I think I, I talked a little bit about, about Chantal Ackerman's news from home on the, the Chantal Ackerman show that we did which I think counts as a documentary. It's a bunch of shots of New York, uh, which, which play out as she reads letters from her mom. Right. Uh, that is, uh, one of my favorite movies of the year. Uh, I also watched all of, uh, Ken Burns, the civil war documentary, which, which is pretty good. Uh, uh, Tokyo Olympiad, which we're going to talk about on the next episode. Uh, cause I think it's one of the best films in 1965. Um, but the main uh, uh, the main one I want to talk about is uh, this director named Adam Curtis, who makes documentaries for the BBC and for the last fifteen years or so has been putting out uh, just some of the best nonfiction films anywhere. This kind of uh, really expansive, really interesting looks at twentieth century history and the kind of underlying motives that that make up a lot of of the causes for the world that as we see it today there's stuff like uh uh there's a film comparing like the rise of of uh radical islamic fundamentalism with the rise of neoconservatism in the united states and kind of demonstrating how they are rooted in the same basic psychological drives and also interconnected in that the one has helped the other achieve success throughout the world uh, mm-hmm. there's a uh, there's a film about uh, uh, called the century of the self about how uh, how psychology has uh, how like modern ideas of, of psychology have been kind of co-opted from the very beginning by by marketing by by uh, to create this kind of uh, consumer ideal to to convince people that the way that to become happy is by buying things, uh, that goes, that's like, that's, uh, that one's really long. It's like four hours long. It's like really expansive, uh, look at this kind of wide swath of, of 20th century history. Um, anyway, there's a whole series of these, they're, they're all built out of, uh, of archival footage, Uh, with occasional interviews and a lot of on-screen titles and and Curtis's own narration and they're really they're just fascinating films they're really entertaining they're really smart Uh, they're great and and the the best of them is a film I think from 2009 called It Felt Like a Kiss that seems to that kind of summarizes a lot of the the previous three or four films that he had made and kind of ties them all together into one kind of definitive statement on the 20th century. And it does it unlike all those other films without narration. It's just all on screen titles and images. And it's, it's a really beautiful documentary.
0: And it was, uh, the other film we were discussing as, as putting on this episode of the show, because I haven't seen any Adam Curtis and it was down to that and Alexander. And I do really, really want to check that out. Yeah.
1: I think, I think, uh, I think these are films that you would really love. Like uh, our, our friend, Matt, who we talk about fairly often on the show, uh, thinks that Adam Curtis is the best filmmaker working today.
0: Well, speaking of Matt, uh, this is something he and I shared. Um, he he got on this bandwagon a little b- bit before I did, but um, and I once again I believe I mentioned this earlier in the year on the show, but um, uh, a little dive that we did uh, was going into watching these German westerns from the sixties based on the Karl May uh, Winnetou characters, um, which are they're not great movies. I've only seen uh, three or four. Um, at, they're they're not you know gonna change your idea of what a western can be or you know they're, they're not going to be up there on on anybody's lists of the best westerns ever made but what's great about them is they're just fun pulpy goofy action movies with um that you know all all revolve around you know someone's you know Quest for Gold, and you know, there's explosions and and just kind of goofy antics that happen, and it's all German, which is even weirder. And the you know uh, Winnetou, the peaceful Indian that you know kind of bridges the two worlds, is played by a Frenchman, and um, it's it's just really bonkers. But it reminds me of of kind of just like the fun you would have, you know, when I was a kid, I would I, I loved watching the A Team. You know, I would come home from school. Four o'clock, A-Team was on. We'd watch the A-Team. Every episode was very schematic. There would be an explosion at the end and, and, and all wow. these kinds of things. But you wouldn't have to... There wasn't any real like underlying um, themes or anything like that. It's just a fun time... And, and uh, these Winnetou films are are very much uh, in that kind of vein, where they're not trying to be revisionist westerns. They don't have any ties to America itself. It's obviously a idealized uh, version of the West um, that's you know filmed in I think uh, God where were they, were they filmed it in like a forest in not Czechoslovakia but somewhere somewhere like that. It was just very strange uh, melding of uh, German ideas about uh the american west but uh they're really really fun and and matt um got me into them because he started watching them i think last year um and scarecrow has of course this this is one of the things that you can only get at scarecrow pretty much they have you know the carl may box set that uh you know is a region two and uh you know won't play on a lot of dvd players but uh but they're fun little films you know if you're looking for an entertaining 80 to 90 minutes um where you just want to chew popcorn and, and laugh, so they're fun
1: yeah i I haven't seen any of those movies.
0: well, the one I would uh recommend uh, was actually the first one I saw Treasure at silver Lake, um which is really gorgeous, like I said it was filmed in a in a national park or forest, and uh it yeah, it's just a really fun time and and you know it it ends with a quest for gold and <laughs> it's just really fun, so yeah. Right I, I look forward to i look forward to watching more of them. I think there's like twelve or so in the box set, but uh, I've only seen three so far
1: right on uh now now is the part of the show where I talk about the the Chinese movies that I saw this year uh <laughs> of which there were not as many discoveries this year as in years past, like like I said, I've had a lot of other interests kind of this year so i've I've really fallen off in like the various projects on my blog as we're doing like Seattle screen scene and stuff but uh, in the spring, we had the, the Ho Shao Shen series come to town, uh, and so I did a lot of re-watching, a lot of Ho's films. I saw um, his first film, uh, Cute Girl, for the first time, and it's actually pretty good. Uh, but it, kind of in preparation for that, I watched a few films of his contemporaries in the Taiwanese New Wave uh, a couple of Edward Yang films, uh, the Terrorizers, which is really, really great. And Taipei story, which I think is pretty good, but the only available transfer of it with English subtitles is really, really terrible. And, uh, that one actually stars, uh, Ho Shao Shen himself as like the main character. Um, and then there's, uh, another movie called a borrowed life by, uh, uh, Wu Nianzhen, who it, which is, uh, kind of the story of of his father and it's a uh, it's a really beautiful kind of affecting movie too and in addition to those taiwanese films um later in the year i did uh a john woo podcast it was i think it was like the only episode of they shot pictures we did in 2015 uh well no we did too. we did we did a press insert one also but uh for the the we did the for the John Woo episode, I got to rewatch a lot of his films that I'd seen before and uh, several new ones. The best of which is the uh, World War II movie he made with Nicolas Cage called Wind Talkers about Navajo code talkers in the fighting in the Pacific. And it's a uh, it's a really uh, it's a really wonderful movie. It's another one of those films that kind of got panned and and bombed on its release in the U.S. Uh, but uh, I've always
0: been intrigued by wind talkers
1: i think it's I think it's one of who's uh one of his best movies, American or otherwise. I think it's really great. It's got a really really brilliant performance from from Adam Beach as the the kind of main uh code talker and uh he he is an actor who should be a superstar, and I don't know why he's not other than the fact that he's Native American yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, I,
0: I, I do yeah. need to see that. Yeah.
1: So yeah, those are that's the the Chinese film corner. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, this goes to show the sensibilities uh, and how you and I differ. You you revisited, you know, um, some auteurs like uh, Ho Hsiao Shen and John Woo, and I've been revisiting uh, piecemeal. Um, but I did get because uh, they had a great deal online. I did get the complete Looney Tunes Golden Collection box set. Um earlier this year, and uh, I've been, you know, every once in a while I'll pop one or two in before I before I get to um, a feature. And uh, they're so great and and they're so th- th- what's great about Looney Tunes is, unlike a Disney picture, um, which, you know, as everybody knows, I really love uh, a lot of things with Disney, but um, the personalities of the directors at Looney Tunes um, and, Mar- and Mary Melodies, are so distinct that if you didn't have the you know credits at the beginning, if you've seen enough, you can probably p- pick out which is a uh, Chuck Jones and which is a uh, you know Frizz Feeling and which is um, Robert McKimson and, and all these people,
1: Frank Tashlin. Um,
0: Frank Tashlin. I mean uh, Tex Avery. I mean all these guys. I mean just absolutely astounding personalities, um, and. And, and so it's been a real a treat to, to go back and watch these. And um, on Letterboxd, you know, if you have the pro account, um, which uh, you get like a special page where it compiles, you know, how many movies you saw this year, how many hours you spent watching movies, what day of the week you, you know, watch movies the most, all those kinds of things. Um, mm-hmm. But it also lists your top five, you know, um, actors that you saw a, a film in that year and a director. And so... Um, frizz-freeling is my director of the year i've seen 12 movies uh directed by frizz-freeling and can you guess who the actor is sean
1: uh
0: mel Blanc is the no. actor that i've seen the most films uh, from yeah, right, right, in right. 2015 um and you know it's no contest but obviously those are short movies but, who, uh, who
1: but... is the, who is the on-screen actor you've seen the most
0: uh, that's going to come up in a second okay. on the show, so uh, you need to hold <laughs> off, Sean. I know you're very excited to find out, but right. um, and so anyway, Looney Tunes totally great, um, and and actually in Seattle this year there has been a there was a Chuck Jones um, exhibit at the uh, EMP, which is like this weird hybrid Paul Allen thing that was originally a music uh, museum and now it's a sci-fi museum crossed with other weird
1: stuff and video games anyway it's it's, it's a paul allen museum
0: it's a paul allen museum it's all the weird
1: all the weird shit paul allen has collected and wants to show people
0: he has multiple museums like that in seattle um, including the living computer museum but anyway they had a um a chuck jones uh exhibit that while fairly skimpy on you know actual artifacts and stuff was still inspiring just because of the artistry on display. And, and they, you know, were showing some of the, the greats, you know, What's Opera Doc and, and uh, uh, Beep Beep and, you know, all these great, great uh, short films that are masterpieces of cinema. Um, and so, you know, Looney Tunes are, are cartoons and films that I could just revisit until my dying day. And uh, I'm glad that I have this box set now.
2: Right
1: on. <laughs> I love those. I, I don't I don't uh I don't think that Looney Tunes is at all incompatible with John Woo and Ho Xiao Shen.
0: Oh no, absolutely not.
1: Yeah. Those are all those are all terrific. Uh I don't know where to, to go from there. Um I can't think of a good segue. <laughs> You've painted me into a corner. Uh <laughs> So I'll just talk about uh, kind of my favorite uh, repertory experiences of the year. Uh, movies that we got to see in the theater, that I got to see in the theater. Uh, there, was a, there was a Jacques Tenor double feature. There was a Jean Renoir double feature. But all of those were movies I'd seen before. Uh, the best new theatrical experience I had was uh, at SIF. And it was Satyajit Ray's The Apu Trilogy none of which I had seen before. Uh, I think we, we talked about Ray way back a couple of years ago.
0: Yep. It was like think, uh, the early, chess... early,
2: early, early. Yeah.
1: yeah. We we watched the chess players. Uh, the Apu trilogy is, and that was a film that I, that I loved. I think we both really, really liked that movie. The Apu trilogy kind of blows it away. Like it is, uh, it is a, a tremendous work and, and is well-deserved of its, its reputation. It's, it all follows. It's it's based, I think, on on one massive novel, and it just follows the life of Apu. And in the the first film is, is Patrick Panchali, uh, that's kind of him as a as a child, and is is actually focused more on his older sister and her relationship with with like her neighbors and her mother than it is on on Apu himself. Uh, the second film is a, a, a Perugido. Um Which is kind of about a who and his parents as he starts to grow up and his parents die. And then the third film is him as a a grown up man and uh, he falls in love, he gets married and then there's tragedy and he walks the earth for a long time and so it's 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 the life story of this one guy as he as he grows up and deals with all of these you know various traumas, especially to all of the women in his life and. Yeah, they're they're amazing, and yeah. and to like sit in one theater and watch them back to back to back was like a tremendous experience.
0: Yeah, I um, I'm sad that I was not there, and uh, I am eagerly waiting to see if under the Christmas tree this year, um, per my request, I get the Blu-ray Criterion uh, box set of the Apu trilogy, which is uh, definitely. One of the the blind spots that I need to rectify as soon as humanly possible because uh, yeah because every because every Satyajit Ray movie I've seen and I've only seen a handful I saw Chess Players you know I've seen the Music Room um I I loved, yeah. loved so
1: yeah for for years uh, Panther Panchali has been like the highest rated film that I hadn't seen like the the film that that ranks highest on like the Sight and Sound list or or various kind of collective uh film history lists there's always like panther panchali comes in at like 38 and that's like the top ranked one that i hadn't seen and now it's Shola, and i don't think i'm going to ever <laughs> watch that so it's probably going to be that far i think that's like the only one in the same sound like top 50 that i haven't seen
0: hey don't sell yourself short sean 2016 discovery show
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well uh like you said we talked about The music room way, way back at the uh, earliest stages of the George Sanders show. Uh, And also one of the people that we uh, highlighted on one of those early shows was Burt Lancaster, um, who I confessed at the time I had never seen a Burt Lancaster film before and I was chastised. Um I was I was shown the door, and that's why ever since I've had to record in a closet uh 30 miles away from you, Sean. I can no longer do this in the same room because of my lack of Bert Lancaster in my life. Um obviously we've I, I've rectified that we talked about the train um uh, you know a few like a year later, um, which I absolutely adored. But this year I really did see a a large Group of Burt Lancaster films and and that ties in with that film Noir that I was talking about earlier a lot of them I saw during that month uh, including films like sorry wrong number and the killers um, I obviously I, I saw one of his most heralded films uh, sweet smell of success and um, Which you know what more can you say about that movie that hasn't been said um, and also uh, brute force, which is a, a really fantastic uh, prison break film um, and you know, I don't know what took me so long. Uh, Burt Lancaster is totally freaking amazing. Um, I, I said this before on the show. He reminds me of my friend's dad. He looks like exactly like him. Uh, but I, but I, re- I, I, really respond to uh, his work, and he's a very versatile actor. He, you know, he's he uh, he does the action hero thing really, really well. Obviously, we talked about that with the train and stuff. Um, but he also can, you know, he can play menacing, um, like Sorry, Wrong Number, and he can. Um, Or Sweet Smell of Success. Or Sweet Smell of Success, something like that. Um, So he's versatile um, in in a way that a lot of actors, particularly um, around that time, you know, a lot of people were typecast into like, this is the role that you do. And um, he doesn't really fit that template. And uh, but I yeah, Burt Lancaster um,
1: is super cool. Yeah, when I when I first started watching old movies, like when I was in college and was like going through all of like the, the best picture winners and and films that are nominated for best actor and everything, I would I would lump Burt Lancaster in with Gregory Peck because I think they won uh, Oscars in back to back years. And I didn't really like Gregory Peck, so I just assumed that Burt Lancaster kinda sucked too. But uh, <laughs> I was totally wrong. Like like Gregory Peck, I still don't really like. But Burt Lancaster is is amazing. He is one of the greats. And you haven't you didn't even mention uh, The Leopard, which uh, which, I, I which you haven't seen. seen. And and speaking of a, a great history film, uh, lucino Visconti's uh, kind of epic of the uh, the end of the Italian aristocracy at the time of uh, unification in the nineteenth century is is great and, and Lancaster is, is amazing in it. And, uh, have you not seen field of dreams?
0: I've seen, I've seen field of dreams, but okay. I was like eight years old. So yeah.
1: All right. Well, he's really yeah. good in that too. It was like yeah. old Burt Lancaster. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's great. He's, he's the man. Uh, yeah, we should, we should watch the leopard sometime. That movie's great. <laughs> I'm uh, so yeah, my, my last, uh, Kind of category here is is stuff I watched because of the show. Uh, there's a lot of really great movies that I would not have seen if not for the George Sanders show. And we've,
0: hey, all right,
1: we've talked about them all on the show, obviously, but uh, just kind of want to list some of them here. There's a. I just got a text message. Sorry. Uh, there's <laughs> a, a, a police adjective which I, I really liked. Uh, Three Crowns of the Sailor, the Raul Ruiz film. I re- yeah, I
0: really liked that one.
1: Uh, uh, Robert Flaherty's Man of Erin, I really loved. Uh, Agnes Varda's Le Bonheur, of course. And uh, actually my number one film discovery of, of 2015, uh, I don't think this will change, is uh, Linda, Linda, Linda. Yeah! Which I really <laughs> adored. I was just thinking about Linda, Linda, Linda earlier today. And yeah, that's a I, I, movie think, that I think I, about it often.
0: I know, right? Yeah. It's so it's so unassuming when you're watching it. But God, I can't think of a movie that lingers quite like Linda, Linda, Linda. Yeah. I love that movie. Yeah. That's great. I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of music, uh, you know, the, uh, those were some of our discoveries of this year. And here's some more. Um, all, of my, all of my musical discoveries uh, today... Are kind of from the same era um, and kind of the same geographical location, um, but this is this will serve as a lead into our discussion of Nightmare Alley. And this is uh, Tubeway Army, uh, the band that was fronted by Gary Newman before he went off to do you know his solo stuff with you know Cars and all that. Um, but this is uh, Down in the Park, which is a totally awesome song.
1: so I was pretty sure there was going to be no connection at all between Alexander and Nightmare Alley and then what do you know right at the end of the film it expresses pretty much exactly the same sentiment <laughs> uh near the end of Alexander uh when uh, uh when he's kind of given up his his quest to conquer the world and has returned home to Babylon and is kind of bored and and sad and and his best friend dies uh alexander says uh uh he's talking about what like a uh jared leto is telling him you know what he's accomplished and and alexander tells him like it's all a myth it's a a legend we haven't really done anything And, and leto says it's a beautiful myth and 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 alexander responds we reach and we fail which is really depressing but it's, it kind of ties together this kind of tragic reading of Alexander as someone who who attempted to do great things and did accomplish a lot of things, but ultimately was kind of a failure. His empire broke up um, when he died at a very young age, even though like culturally it lived on, but whatever. Uh, and then here in Nightmare Alley, you have the story of a uh, of a of a who uh, becomes a mentalist and rises up in society and attempts to. Uh, make himself like independently wealthy and gets totally screwed over by a psychiatrist and then ends up as a geek again. And the end of the film is uh, one of the other carnies says, you know, how did a guy like that end up so low? And, and the response and is the last line of the film is he reached too high. That's right. So there you go. Two films about failure, uh, the failures of ambition,
0: the Greeks and the geeks.
1: Yes. We have we have Alexander the Great and Tyrone Power the geek. <laughs>
2: That's right. Uh,
1: so yeah, this is this was your film. This was is a film noir. Uh, I don't know that it really should count as a film noir. I agree. It's uh, it's a film that is is routinely listed as such, and it's it's considered one of the the really good ones, and it's one of the few of the most acclaimed noirs that I hadn't seen. And it's it always kind of looked a little dull to me. It looked a little not film noir and Tyrone Power is not an actor that I've ever really cared for. And all of that kind of proved correct.
2: Oh! <laughs> oh, Dagger in my heart.
0: My soul is on fire. Um, I will agree with your first point. It's, you know, while um, a lot of it um, you know, it it has some of the same underpinnings as as a noir. Obviously, there's there's shady characters. You know, um, the, the the lighting, like in the beginning of the movie, in the in the uh, in the carnival, is you know very a lot of shadows, a lot of characters working in shadow, and there's desperation and all those kinds of things. Um, but yeah, on the whole, the the plot is very far removed from your typical noir, um, yeah. and follows this kind of you know. Uh, Megalomaniacal, you know, guy on on his rise to power and subsequent fall or whatever.
1: Yeah, Um, it's more of a straightforward kind of morality tale than than a film noir. Like, it's not. It's it's kind of it's a little there's a little nastiness to it, and I think that's what makes it really interesting. But it's not. It's never really all that complicated. Like like Power's character is like the worst.
2: Well, yeah, he's
1: always the worst, and and. But, you know, uh, he's not he's not he's not like a wrong man. He's not somebody who who made a mistake once and is now suffering for it. He's
0: he's uh, uh, he's a serial liar and a, yeah. a cat and a cheat and a despicable human being. And yet he has the power to wield that uh to his own ends uh and and pull the wool over a lot of people's eyes, which uh, I find very fascinating. I'm not, I'm not well-versed in Tyrone Power. Um, and I, I don't know how many things of his I've seen. I think he's really good here, actually. Um, I, I think he does a really good job of, as this guy um, and he, and he's, and he's got, he goes through a couple different stages in the film. You know, he's despicable the whole way through. Um, in, in, a, in a way that, uh, for example, like Steve Martin's character in My Beloved Pennies from Heaven is. That guy is a horrible, horrible person. He's terrible. But at the same time, when I'm watching th- these guys doing these horrible things and, and the manipulations that they go through and all of those things, I feel sorry for them.
2: Because they're, th- they're
0: not deluding, the, the person they're deluding the most is themselves.
1: I don't know. I think I think uh I think Martin is uh is a lot more successful at that. I think I think there's like a vulnerability to Steve Martin that that Tyrone Power doesn't have. And I I like Tyrone Power sometimes. Uh I really like his Zorro. I think he's he's like a he's great in that film. I think it's the the mark of Zorro. Uh from 1940. Uh He's really good there. I don't I don't he looks more like George Clooney in this movie than ever than I've ever seen him before. Uh, but other than that
0: is that a knock against Tyrone Power in this movie? No, that's
1: a good thing. Oh. Looking like George Clooney is always a good thing. Oh, but sure. uh, I don't uh, yeah, I don't really kind of buy him in, in any of the scenes here. Like I he just he he never's sleazy enough for this character.
0: Really? That's fascinating to me. Yeah. Well, can we agree on one thing? Sure. Joan Blondell is fucking amazing.
1: Joan Blondell is always amazing.
0: She is so good. And you're right. She's she's amazing in everything I've ever seen her in. I talked about her uh, just a couple weeks ago uh, because I had watched Cincinnati Kid and she's in that. Um, But she's great. Oh, my God. Uh, crowd roars. She's fantastic. The Howard mm-hmm. Hawks film from the '30s. Uh, and you know, went during her heyday and stuff. But
2: yeah.
0: Oh God, she plays uh, uh her character. There's there's so much going on with her character that I find so interesting in this movie. She plays Zena, uh, pronounced differently than the warrior princess, or, or spelled differently than the warrior princess. Seriously. Um, who is a a, a long time. You know, she was in vaudeville, and then she kind of is slumming it in in uh, in the carnival circuit now because her partner is now, uh, you know, a drunk, a, a drunk, uh, you know, unrepentant, uh, completely, you know, unable to be saved, drunk. Um, so she's slumming it with him, but the humanity in that character that she plays um, is to me. To to me, that's the linchpin of this movie. That's what, that's what makes this movie so fascinating. Or one of the things that makes this movie really fascinating. Um, she just... She nails it.
1: There's a sadness there. Um, she's great, but she's wholly absent from the last hour of the film.
0: She is, but I think the movie... I think the movie, when it moves into those other gears and does other things, I think story-wise... I think it's really fascinating. I think it does some really interesting things with de- you know talking about deception and people's you know predilection for you know falling under you know charlatans and uh you know hokum and religion and all those kinds of things and how people just want to believe in something uh, yeah. how ridiculous it is.
1: Well there there are, there's there are faints in the direction of a a critique of of mass religion uh but it never really follows through with him I don't I don't think it could in 1947 and at the same time it's paired with a very kind of evangelical teetotalism and uh about the evils of alcohol that just seems false like it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense like I don't really buy his his complete and utter collapse really oh yeah.
0: man we are oh.
1: Or like his I don't know you- his psychological he needs to, I don't know if it's power or if it's the the, the screenplay, but when he when the tables are finally turned on him, when the, when the the psychologist like reveals that she's she's screwed him over, uh, he needs to completely break down and it it doesn't really work. like it, it asserts that he goes nuts, but it doesn't I'm not convinced of it. I'm not convinced that that guy would be, you know, so easily reduced to to hoboism.
0: I, I, I think he was. I think he was teetering on that brink for a while. You know, I mean, he gets increasingly, but you know, while he tries to hide it, um, you know, from his wife and from everybody around him. the cracks are showing well before she screws him over. And I think that the decline is is uh, foreshadowed by by his, you know, terse uh, exchanges with his wife in the last several scenes. and um he's clearly. He's clearly uh, trying to outrun the sun here. You know what I mean? And, uh, and yeah, I well, like...
1: I, I I get that he is he is reaching beyond his grasp, but I don't get that he is, he is going to suffer a psychological breakdown if he fails because this this guy is so confident and so smooth. No, but he's not uh, all like, the time. No, he is. He,
0: no, he, he, he so so early in the film we see see the damage that. Uh, the fact that he is responsible for the death of the uh, the alcoholic, I mean,
1: yeah, he some... fe- he feels a little guilty, but that doesn't stop him from like immediately hiding the the incriminating bottle.
0: But it eats away at him. He's he's. I mean, that whole because he's he's done that, and and it's an you know. Uh, an act that he can't, you know, take back. It's eating him away, but he's he puts on this facade of of being this confident dude. Um and he and he once again I think that that's what the interesting thing about this movie is is that there's nobody that's more delusional in this movie than he is. Like he's he's convinced himself that he is this confident guy, but he's really not.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't I don't get that. Oh. I don't get that other level at all out, oh. of, out of
0: the film. Oh, it's a shame.
1: I think Shame. I think he I think he's very confident, and then he loses some money, and he is a drunk.
0: Well, all right, uh, <laughs> I, I I don't know what to tell you. Uh,
1: uh, I did really like uh, the the woman who plays his wife, who actually just died a few months ago, uh, Colleen Gray. Cole, Colleen Gray, yeah, yeah. She she is very pretty.
2: <laughs> you know,
0: I knew watching this the minute she came on the screen. I'm starting to learn.
1: My your, type. Your,
0: your type is because <laughs> as soon as she came on screen this time and I knew you were watching it too. I was like, Sean's going to say she's pretty. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I I, do you that, think
1: that's a controversial statement? Uh,
0: I, I, I think Helen Walker and Joan Blondell are uh, more attractive. Ooh. Yeah.
1: I like, I like Helen Walker. She's, she's got the, the kind of edge to her. She plays the psychiatrist. Um, She's Don't you the... think
0: that character is fascinating?
1: I do, and I think she's a lot more fascinating than Tyrone Power, and I think she's got that that edge that that Power is lacking.
0: But but once again, like I said, I th- I feel like Joan Blondell um, carries the picture for the first hour, and then um, then you introduce this new character, this Lilith Ritter, the psychiatrist, um, it and that and that picks up the slack. I think that it really. I think that that character's. Her confidence in the final scene that she has with him when he breaks into her place, um, and yeah, the, the way she's,
1: she's terrific in that. scene. Oh, though.
0: she spins out this this web of lies that mm-hmm. um, are so calculated, and and oh gosh, it's great.
1: Yeah, she's she's so much better in that scene than Tyrone Power is in any scene.
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> I think you. I feel like you brought some personal prejudice to tyrone power here because i think, I I, think I, I, said, I I
1: like tyrone power i think yeah. i think he's he's fine i think i think it's i think he's miscast like I, I just i don't think he's got the range for this kind of character he's too he's too likable he's too he has uh, to he's be too he's too happy like there there is no darkness in tyrone power
0: See, I see the okay. Well, I mean, we could just go around. You know, we can run around yeah. Robinson's barn. Uh,
1: this is also, like, like uh, he's in uh, uh, Witness for the Prosecution, and I think it's uh, it's kind of a problem with that film as well. Although I think Billy Wilder makes use of that quality of Tyrone Power, that kind of uh, simple goodness that he exudes. Mm. Well. Yeah, right. I don't know. I
0: mean I, I know there's no way of convincing you <laughs> but uh, I I think he's very good here. I think it's I think it's a, a solid, you know, performance. I I will say I you know I do think that the female leads here uh do a stronger job than than Tyrone Power. I will, I will give you that. But that's just because Joan Blondell kicks all sorts of ass and uh, she's great. Sure. And Mike Mazursky's in this too, by the way.
1: Well, yeah, he's he's always reliable. <laughs> so what do you, what do you think about the film's kind of religious critique? Because if there is a, a theme, I think that is what it's trying to be as as the 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 carney becomes a kind of a a a, a profit figure for, for wealthy sad people. Do you do you yeah. think it's trying to to indict a kind of uh, charlatanism? In American religion, or or what?
0: I, I absolutely do think it's doing that. I, yeah. I think and do like you think you said, it does so effectively. Uh yeah, I think it does actually. Yeah. And and I, I you know I, I do think as you said, uh, doing something like this in nineteen forty seven. Uh, you know I, I think that there may have been some straightjacketing going on, or there you know it couldn't push it it couldn't push it all the way. I I'm, I'm really intrigued. I was, I was actually going to try and get to this before um, the show, but obviously this didn't happen, but I'm interested to read the novel that this is based on um, and see how it dives its, it's into it in, in a kind of written narrative and, and see what kind of things pop out of it from there. But um, no, absolutely. I think, I think it does uh, try and serve as a, um, an expose into the, you know, the kind of insidious nature that religion can play in terms of, you know, um,
1: playing upon people's hopes.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Do you th- disagree? Think,
0: you don't think it does that? You, you don't think that's what it's going Well Like to I said, I think, I
1: think there are like hints in that direction, but I don't, I, it, it lacks, it lacks follow through. I do like the, the kind of ultimate twist there, which is, uh, that the the religious charlatan is is uh, betrayed in turn by the psychiatrist who proves right. the far more manipulative type. I think uh, I think this. Well, is, I think I, I think, think this, this is also... a very kind of pro Scientology movie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I but I, I do I do I do agree. I mean, I don't think that I, I think this movie is uh, is out to get charlatans. Period. Like I, I mean, it's it's yeah. clearly an indictment of psychiatry as well. But it you know. Um, so religions, psychiatry, um, you know, uh, mental, you know, mentalists or, or psychics or whatever. I mean, any sort of uh, ruse that's being played on and preying on people's um, emotions and, and aspirations or whatever, I think gets gets uh, under the knife here. And uh, I, I think it's effective. I, th- I really do think it's I think it's well done. I think I think I also think the direction here. I think there's some really striking imagery going on in this movie, particularly in the beginning um, set at the carnival, like after hours and you get these kind of, you know, these deep shadows. And, um, and then in particular, this, the great scene where he's, he's tasked with materializing the, uh, the lost love of this wealthy um, socialite guy. Um, And, and he convinces his wife, you know, this is what the bond, what breaks the bond of their marriage pretty much to dress up as this woman in kind of Victorian garb and walk through this field or whatever. Um, That's some, that's some really uh, strong imagery going on there. Yeah. Oh my God. I
1: think, I think, uh, I think it's shot. Well, I league arms is the cinematographer and, and he's, He's one of the the very good studio area cinematographers. Uh, Edmund Goulding, I think, doesn't bring a lot of personality to the the direction. Uh, I mean, it, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, I'm just I'm just
0: saying that there there are some well yeah. there's some there, there's some great compositions. Um, I that scene in in the garden, uh, you know, has stuck with me. I was I was eagerly uh, looking forward to that scene popping up again uh, after having seen it the first time.
1: Well, uh, how how about this? Uh, like I said, the the last line of the film is, uh, and obviously, like it's got it's got like this kind of happy ending, like a nod towards like a redemptive ending. He's reunited with his wife. That's like it reads completely absurd. Um, oh yeah. Uh, but then there's the there's this last line of the film, which is which is that he he reached too high, and that's and that's how he ended up so low. And the implication there is that if he had just gone on being a celebrity mentalist instead of trying to, like, scam rich people using the psychiatrist, then he would have been fine. That his problem was not that he was dishonest and that he was, uh, you know, uh, putting on on a show. It was that he put on too much of a show. Like, he went a little bit too far. So maybe if he had just, you know, kept his racket the way it was... That would have been acceptable.
0: No, I don't think so at all. I think I think you have to take into account the characters that are saying that line. Like, of course, the to the carnies that are saying that line, that's wholly acceptable. I don't think that's necessarily the movie's uh, position. I think it's it's these guys that are like, oh, look, it's good old big shot, you know. Like, how could you know? That guy was rich and famous. How come you know? How does he end up here? You know what I mean? Like yeah. as if that—that's is as if that is the uh, ultimate goal or whatever. I don't think the movie's necessarily saying that. I think that those characters who are basically him at the beginning of the movie,
1: right? Um, yeah, it's it's very it's very kind of obvious the way he's going to end up. It's, oh yeah it's, it's, it's really like it's really telegraphed this is not this is not a subtle movie at all like I no. mean if you're looking for subtlety,
0: this is not the movie like this is a a parable this is you know, um everything is spelled out in the opening scene. I mean yeah. he looks at the the original geek and says, how can a man end up like that and you know, oh it's gonna you, end
1: up like that it's right. gonna
0: end up like that I mean, but that's fine i in my mind I mean I think there, if 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 it's done well, um I think there's enough to chew on. And, and I think uh, that it works, but
1: I don't know. I mean, that's fine.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, uh, (laughs) it's fine.
1: I did. I didn't not like this movie. I just, I, I just, you know, it's it's fine. It's good. It's good. (laughs) All
0: right. Well, what else? Uh, Another thing that's good. And actually I just realized that this ties in with that final line that you're uh, harping on so much here. (laughs) Uh, is my final pick for uh, musical discoveries this year. Uh, this is a, a song by a band that's not really a band, it's just one guy, but he pretended to be a band uh, back in the late 70s uh, called the Silicon Teens. Uh, and this is their song, a very spooky song uh, called Sunflight. <laughs> Okay, that's it for our 2015 Discovery Show. Uh, next time on the program, we will be doing our 1965 Year in Review, where we'll talk about um, all kinds of films that we saw um, that were made in 1965. Um, and that'll be, a, you know, we'll do a top five list of our favorite films. Uh, we'll pick best director, best picture, best actor, all that good stuff. Um, and then we'll also be discussing uh, in depth uh, two films from that year. Uh, the follow-up to a hard day's night uh, from the Beatles uh, help and a pistol for Ringo, which is a spaghetti Western um, and looks super fun. So uh, yeah, check that out. Uh, be, are we going to record it? We need to talk about recording because that the day of recording would be Christmas day and I, I, that's not going to happen.
1: No, no, it'll be, <laughs> it'll be, we'll figure something out.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, so it, I be earlier late next time, but yep. that's how it goes. Um, I will be down in California um, for the pretty much the end of the year here. Um, And so my rep pick this time around uh, at the Walt Disney family museum at the Presidio in beautiful San Francisco, uh, they will be showing all month lady and the tramp uh, in their nice little jewel box theater there. I hope to go see that when I'm down there. Um, I'll see if I can convince the family to either come with me or let me, leave them alone for a few hours. We'll see what happens. I have a lot of family that needs to be seen. Um, and there's also movies that need to be seen because I will also be seeing the new Star Wars movie when I'm down there. And on Christmas Day, first show, I will be seeing the Road Show 70 millimeter version of uh, Tarantino's The Hateful Eight before I get into a car and drive 13 hours back to Seattle that very day. So uh, <laughs>
1: that uh, sounds like a big day. It's going to be a big day. <laughs> Uh, I have no idea when I'm going to be seeing The Hateful Eight. Probably not until it comes to the mall. Uh, but uh, were I in Vancouver in the coming weeks, I could see a whole bunch of Alfred Hitchcock and Francois Truffaut movies because they're doing a series at the Van City Theater tying in with uh, Kent Jones' uh, documentary on Hitchcock Truffaut, which they're uh, also playing and which we have both seen. And uh, I think you'll agree with me. It's, uh, it's a very fine film.
0: It's fine, yeah. You know, uh, you know, what two directors did you like the most in that?
1: I really liked. I really liked uh, David Fincher.
0: David Fincher's great, right? Yeah. Fincher was on point in that movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was definitely the best. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah,
1: I like. Anyway. <laughs> uh, I like. I like kind of the unusual choices, the people that you wouldn't really expect, like like Arno or. Uh, well,
0: that was my that was my number two. Or, or
1: Wes Anderson, who are. You know, if you think about it, they're they're both very. If you think about it, they're like obviously influenced by Hitchcock, but but they're not the names that come to mind because they don't really work in the thriller genre in the way that like right. Fincher or or Kyoshi Kurosawa do. But uh, but yeah, I, th- I think. Uh, it's good. It's, it's, it's a very fine movie. Anyway, they're doing a whole bunch of uh, Hitchcock and Truffaut things, uh, films for the next several weeks at the Van City Theater, which we have both been to and is a lovely theater. It's it's one of my favorite. And uh, coming up on December nineteenth, it looks like they've got uh, starting the day with North by Northwest, and then you have Hitchcock Truffaut itself. Then you have uh, Four Hundred Blows, Shoot the Piano Player, and the night is capped off with The Birds so that is a pretty amazing day in the cinema and uh if there is any auditorium in the world that you would watch five movies in one day in it's the van city theater it's it's pretty much a perfect auditorium so wow that's
0: what day is that
1: december 19th
0: oh i'm in california i i might i i'm you know, possibly would have driven up for that. That would have been really, really cool.
1: Yeah, it looks like they have a, a 35 millimeter print of 400 blows and shoot the piano player. Uh, but the others look like DCPs.
0: Yeah. yeah that's but still. A- yeah, But still, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, uh, You can find out more about us and this show at the George We're on Twitter at geosandersshow Show. We have an email account, uh, the George Sanders Show at gmail.com. And we have another website, uh, seattlescreenscene.com where I think in the next week or two, the, the like, 2015 uh, poll will be released of all the local film it'll, nerds. it'll
1: be coming out on Monday. You need to send me your list. Wait, this Monday? Yeah, today's oh, no. today's the deadline. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: I didn't get it. I didn't get anything in the mail. <laughs> no one sent me anything about this.
1: Okay, you need to get to work on your list. I'm oh, posting the results Monday, whether I have a list from you or not.
0: Okay. <laughs> and these these are movies that were released theatrically in Seattle in 2015.
1: Yes, although I'm not I'm not like being really strict about it. You know, we're kind of being flexible. Okay. it's it's, you know for kids (laughs) that's right like the hula hoop
0: all right uh so now here we go final discovery 2015 sean what song are you taking us out with
1: uh my final discovery of 2015 is uh is well she's not really a discovery because i had heard some of her songs before i mean how could you not but uh i really fell in love with uh this rihanna album uh called loud and uh this is one of the songs from that, and I don't know. I have I had a few choices. I was thinking the uh, the piano version of "Love the Way You Lie," but that's kind of a downer for the end of the show. So, how about uh, the one about uh, getting really drunk called uh, "Cheers"? Where
0: everybody knows your name? <laughs> yeah, I,
1: that
0: that would be a Rihanna song for me if she yeah. covered that. Yeah.
1: You, cool. don't like, you don't like Rihanna for some reason because you're a monster.
0: I don't like Rihanna, that's right. Yeah.
1: White,
4: white, <laughs> yeah,
1: because you're a monster. Yeah, well. Mm. too short to be miserable. And People gonna
4: talk whether you.